Hey guys, very warm welcome uh, to uh, church on this Palm Sunday from my house. Um, it's probably the weirdest Palm Sunday that we've ever experienced. But while we can't be together physically, we can still celebrate together. And remember the great crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem for that Passover feast on that day when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city. They'd come from all over the nation that day. Gathered from other countries too, the cities thronged with people from almost every nation, tribe and tongue. They'd all come to celebrate God's saving of his people from slavery in Egypt and to declare again that Yahweh is the God who saves. So if you've got a Bible handy, why don't you grab it for a minute? We're going to uh, turn to Matthew 21 and read again um, some verses from 1 to 11 and remind ourselves of what happened that day. And uh, children and young people especially, um, keep an eye out for some of those words that Kathy read before from that psalm and see if you can spot them in this reading. Here we go. From Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey there, tied up with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you anything, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them straight away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So did you spot those verses from Psalm 118, 25 and 26? It's hard for us in our society to understand what it would have been like for a Jew growing up in Jesus' day when the whole fabric of your society and your custom was built on the law and the prophets. Learning the Old Testament was a foundational basis of your education system and every Jewish boy and girl grew up knowing the Psalms as part of the hymnology of the day. So when they burst out in praise like this of Jesus, it's not just some random chant that these guys have started. It's a deliberate declaration of the truth of scripture taken and applied to him. It's an expectation that Messiah's actually here. And the same God who saved his people in the past has sent him as a saviour for the here and now. And so the cry of the crowd is, this is Jesus, this is God's prophet, God's anointed rescuer. And the crowd goes wild, as they say. They're tearing off their cloaks and chopping the branches off trees. Again, from Psalm 118, with bows in hand, they're joining in that festal procession. They're waving their branches and shouting his praise at the top of their lungs. And they're welcoming in Jesus, the Saviour. And yet, by the end of this Holy Week that we celebrate now, 
the same crowd that welcomed Jesus in, with such passion, a bane for his blood. Stirred up by the chief priests and the religious leaders, they choose the release of a violent rebel leader instead of the Prince of Peace himself. And it makes me wonder why that change, why that turnaround in reception. And I think it hinges on who the crowd were looking for in this Messiah. You see, within that crowd were several groups of people all looking for their own idea of what kind of saviour Jesus was going to be. First of all, there are those that are looking for some great spiritual leader, some religious leader who's going to restore the true worship of Yahweh to the nation. He's going to purify their religious practices and unify Judaism. And he's going to turn the hearts of the people fully back to God. And yet the first thing that Jesus does just after he's made this triumphal entry is enter the temple courts and start throwing tables and coins about and driving out the money lenders and uh, uh, chasing out the animals and all of the sacrifices that have been prepared in, in that temple area. And to us, with the benefit of hindsight, it seems like an obvious thing for Jesus to do. But imagine what it looked like to someone who'd grown up their whole lives trying to worship God in a particular way, being used to all these kind of temple practices and the buying of selling of sacrifices as a way to show your worship of God. It must have looked completely sacrilegious to them and turned that expectation of a great religious leader on its head. Here's Jesus losing it in the temple courts. And then you've got others. There are those that are looking for a great warrior king. Both John and Mark's gospel both talk about um, the, the crowd shouting out, blessed is the king of Israel in that crowd. But here's Jesus riding in peace and on a donkey, not coming dressed from battle and riding on a war horse. And then there's those that no doubt are just loving the spectacle. Here's Jesus, the celebrity, this fabulous, miracle-working, uh, miraculous, magical character who even raises the dead back to life and does all kind of tricks. He's come to headline in the capital and show this great spectacle to the people. And then you've got some like the zealots, some of whom Jesus chose to be his own disciples. They're looking for a revolutionary. They're looking for someone to come in and overthrow the Roman rulers in the way that, that the Maccabees had overthrown the Greeks a couple of hundred years before. They want someone who's going to deliver them from Roman rule and Roman oppression, and that's what they're looking for. And there's so many different expectations of who Jesus was going to be. And they're all wrong. And everyone's disappointed. You know, we were chatting uh, in one of our online youth chats earlier in the week about how lots of the young people's friends and contemporaries who say they don't even really believe in God still want to blame him when everything goes wrong. So in the world at the moment, if God's really God, why doesn't he just stop the coronavirus? Which is our way of saying, of course, if I was God, I'd do a better job than he's doing. 
I do it differently. But that's the difference between us and God. God's never under the illusion that he's us. We, on the other hand, often think that we know better than him and that something's gone wrong when he doesn't meet our expectations. As if God was ever under any pressure to live up to our expectations. So just a thought for us today and in this season, for those of us that are claiming to be followers of Jesus and have put our faith in Jesus as our saviour, let's make sure that we're putting our trust in the actual Jesus. He's always true to his word, but who sometimes acts in ways that we didn't expect. Let's make sure that we're not trusting just in the saviour that we thought he was. The one who's going to save us in the way that we want to be saved. And with the kind of expectations that we place on him. If we can do that, we just might find that he's already saved us in ways that we haven't even imagined. But there's another bit of Psalm 118 recorded in Matthew's Gospel. So let's grab our Bibles again. And we're going to have a little look further down that passage quickly at the verses in Matthew 21, 33 to 36. Jesus is here, he's talking with the religious leaders and he tells them a parable about a vineyard to illustrate the way they kind of always rejected the prophets that God has sent to teach and lead them. And then he asked them a question straight from Psalm 118. And we read in here from verse 42 of this bit. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, because the people held that he was a prophet. So, um, just for the sake of any of the children and young people, or anybody else out there that's wondering exactly what a cornerstone is, it's originally the first stone that's laid in a building. It's the one that's got perfect sides to it. it it's perfectly formed, it's been perfectly chiselled out, it's, it's lovely and perpendicular and properly aligned and every other stone that's ever laid in a building after that one takes its place from reference to that first perfect cornerstone. It sets the pattern for everything else that's ever been built. It's all built from the foundation of that one cornerstone. And when Peter and John and the other apostles started establishing the early church they recognized exactly what jesus meant uh, by this in relation to himself and, and passages like acts 4 and, and ephesians 2 and other places in the bible talk about the importance of building our lives with reference to jesus and not laying any other foundation other than the one he laid down for those religious leaders that jesus spoke to it didn't make any sense to them. They rejected him because he didn't look like the kind of perfect stone to build anything onto them. 
He didn't fit the expectation. But for us today, hopefully, we can see him as he is. You see, he's the perfect one. He's not just perfect in all he does. He's not perfect because he always meets our expectations. He's not perfect because he does what we want him to do. He's not perfect because he solves all our problems. He's not perfect because every time we pray to him, we get the perfect answer that we want. But he's perfect in every way. And therefore, life and everything else can be safely built in reference to him and in reference to nothing else. You know, just before this triumphal entry that's recorded in Mark's Gospel, Jesus told a parable about putting our trust in the wrong things. He spoke about two men who both built houses, one who built a house on the sand, which represents all the shifting, changeable, uncertain things, like money, like fame, celebrity, material possessions, even our friends and families put in the wrong place, our job security, and all those kind of things that have been put under threat by a situation like we face now. And then he talked about a man who built his house on the rock. He trusted in the unshakable, unchanging, ever faithful, ever loving God, who doesn't change like shifting shadows, and is neither threatened by or altered by the circumstances that threaten or overcome us. He speaks to the storms both within and without us, to our anxieties and the situation that we find ourselves in, and to both he speaks peace, be still. You know, if we put the wrong cornerstone in place, everything else we build on might as well be sand. But as the Apostle Peter said when he was quoting Isaiah, again, look for the similarity in the language here. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and a precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Because Jesus is the rock. He is the totally perfect, totally sinless, always dependable, ever faithful, straight edge that we can line our lives up on. And then even if the worst appears to be happening, he works it out for our good. And we can find just like those disciples did a, a week or so later on the road to Emmaus that, that actually even when it feels like the end of the world and everything has gone wrong, there's still a hope of resurrection to be found in Jesus and a promise of eternal life that works both now and on into the future. You see, a foundation built on Christ can never be shaken and our hope will never be put to shame. We're going to sing some words in a minute or two. We're going to worship together and declare this truth that Christ alone is the cornerstone and the weak are made strong in the Saviour's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, always Lord of all. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we want to thank you that you don't change. You are the same yesterday, today and forever. Thank you for your unchangeable, unshakable, never disturbed nature. Lord, thank you that we can put our faith and our trust in you, knowing that you are always there and you have all things under your control. Thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Lord, we want to thank you that as we line ourselves up with you, as we plant our feet firmly on the rock of Christ, that we can know that we stand in on solid ground and whatever comes our way, good or bad, certain or disturbed, we can know that we have a hope that can never be shaken and a security that can be found in nothing else other than you. Jesus, help us to place our feet firmly on the truth of who you are, not even as we imagine you to be. Lord, keep us from ever suggesting that we should change your mind, that you might do things our way. But Lord, help us to line ourselves up with you, your promises and your truth, and build our lives firmly on you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.